3: Cozy also offers a great range of coffee tables, washable rugs, wall shelving, and credenzas. Their outdoor collection features high-quality, modular sofas and sectionals made for outdoor living. You can visit their store in Toronto. Cozy now has expanded from an online market to their first in-person space. Or go directly to their website at cozy.com. That's C-O-Z-E-Y dot com. Transform your living space today with Cozy. Visit Cozy.com to start customizing your furniture today. This is Milk Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Chef Jose Andres likes to feed the few, but loves to feed the many. Today we chat about how we helped serve over 3 million free meals in Puerto Rico after the hurricane.
4: When many people were meeting and talking... About how to do it, we were already doing it. Sometimes in these situations, a plan is an enemy of providing food relief. For us, no plan, just cooking and delivering the food to the people in need.
3: Also coming up, Dan Pashman rails against office fridge theft. We serve up chocolate ginger scones. But now it's my interview with Emmy Cho on her YouTube channel, Emmy Made in Japan. Emmy taste tests unique foods from around the world, including MREs, ready-to-eat military rations. Emmy, welcome to Milk Street.
1: Thank you. Thanks for having
3: me. And you're right here at Milk Street.
1: I I am. I'm so excited.
3: So let's talk about the history of MREs, uh, military rations, and you've, you've spent a lot of time eating these including some that were 20 years old. So what's the history of MREs? How did they get started?
1: MREs, I think, were an evolution of rations or food soldiers have to eat. They came out of sea rations or sea rats which were canned rations, which were very heavy, as you can imagine. MREs were supposed to be a lighter, more streamlined, more compact version of the original C-rat. And they were packaged in these plastic film containers rather than cans. And then the menu was broadened. And so that was the MRE. It was supposed to be an improvement. It was supposed to boost morale for soldiers because if you eat this day in and day out, it gets old.
3: So what's in an MRE usually? You've tasted lots of them. Are some of them actually... I'll use the term pretty good.
1: I think it's kind of relative. People ask me, what are you expecting, something gourmet? Not at all. Whenever I'm tasting something, it's within a certain context. You're looking at a prepackaged food that has a long shelf life. There are some that are not as good. I believe there's a vegetable omelet, which is these kind of ready-cooked egg things that aren't so great you know, that's where you start doing some bartering.
3: So so what are the ones, like the fruit? Is that something that's bartered a lot? What, what are the, the hot ones?
1: I think the hot ones back in the day were when they had actual full-size packages of M&Ms. I think the cocoa mix is handy because people make kind of puddings. People adjust them. Instead of eating it as a pudding, maybe you would add less water and spread it on the pound cake. And so there's some interesting things that happen when people— reinvent them.
3: So uh, the 26-year-old MRE, this was meatballs or something?
1: Yes, it was meatballs in a marinara sauce. And uh, I think I only ate a one meatball and that was enough. Yes, I actually went on eBay to look for old ration just because I was curious to see. Do,
3: do people send them to you?
1: People, most of the ones that I get, people do send to me, especially the international ones. They're very difficult to get. I love being able to compare them to see, get a little glimpse into some culture what's important to people or what, what's necessary and what's nostalgic. All those kinds of things are really interesting. Well, to
3: me. Let's, let's follow that up. So yeah. give me a couple examples of MREs from different countries, which had a very different take than the American version.
1: Well, for example, the one that comes to mind is the Polish ration that I had. It did have things that were in cans, but then it had this brilliant thing of putting a plastic lid on top. So if you didn't finish it, you could just put the lid mm. on top and save it for later. I'm like, that's brilliant. And the food actually tasted quite good. I was really fatty stews. If you like porky fatty stews, it was delicious. There was some meat pâtés. I'm just like, this is great.
3: So... Our MREs now, obviously designed for disposability, weight, etc. Do you think that maybe going back to something that was a little more old-fashioned, like the Polish MRE? I mean, is isn't giving uh, troops food they want to eat kind of an important thing? <laughs> Yes. Think, you think yes, know.
1: it is. And I think it is being considered, but I think it depending on what those cultural standards or expectations are, they're different. So in the US they just came out with the last two years a pizza and this was huge and people just wanted their hands on it, What is this pizza? So they spent, I imagine, many years trying to design a shelf stable pizza. And I tasted it and it's not it's not very good. But if you're really Jones in for a pizza, maybe maybe that'll do.
3: It looks like pizza. Doesn't yeah, taste like it, but right. looks like. Well,
1: it. it did kind of taste like that cafeteria pizza, like you know they give to kids at grade school. Oh. That rectangular slice with those kind of weird cubes of pepperoni.
3: What What are some other cultural markers when you tasted MREs from other countries?
1: Oh, well, Japan. That ration, the staple, of course, is rice. So rather than having something like bread, you have your rice and your entree. But there'll be things that will be different like pickles. Or for example, when I tasted a Ukraine ration, and I believe also my Russian ration, there was a soup, a kind of a vegetable soup. But none of my other rations had any, because that's a substantial amount of weight that you're carrying. Okay. But a soup would be, you could imagine, especially in a cold country, having a hot soup would be something that would boost your morale.
3: So what have you learned about how to taste foods on camera?
1: I think I've just always followed my gut. So I really want to know how things are opened. Do you use a knife? Is there a little perforation? I once did a Russian IRP that was all in Russian, and I wanted to try to figure it out. And, of course, I made mistakes. I made what was apple butter. I thought it was a drink, so I mixed it with water. And it was delicious. And people like, no, honey, that that actually was supposed to go on the toast. So I brought along a little MRE for you to taste. Southwestern beef. <laughs> Nobody
3: ever brings me food. This is great. There you go.
1: Meal 24. <laughs> so
3: it's it's uh, menu 24, Southwest style beef and black beans. Yes. Now i got to figure out how to get it open. Yes, it there's a peelable. peelable seal. This is not peelable. It is if you just really leverage, oh, leverage the thumbs. Like <laughs> I'm sitting here. I'm cold I'm wet. I'm in the field. You yes.
1: Know. Or you use your jackknife. Okay,
3: I'm using my, knife, my <laughs> pencil thing. <laughs> okay, here we go. I got it. <laughs> Okay. What do you got? So I have the beef and black beans with sauce. Yes. I have uh, tortillas comma chipotle. Actually sounds pretty good.
1: Chipotle? I don't think I've had that one. Hey. Okay.
3: I have a beef snack, which sounds really kind of dubious to me. That sounds terrible. A cheese spread. (laughs) Uh, Spiced pound cake. Instant cappuccino powder.
1: You can make a frosting with that.
3: This is great. So... Overall, you would put this in your top tier, probably.
1: That's a pretty good one. Yeah, the tortillas actually are pretty good.
3: My guess is on the way out of the studio, you're going to snag the tortillas <laughs> on, for the ride home. So. I'm just
1: curious to see if they're, they're red. You know, the Chipotle tortillas? Oh, well,
3: let's see. Hold on. Yeah. They're tinted. They're tinted. They're pumpkin colored. <laughs> okay, well, I, here's what we're going to do uh, I'm going to give you one of these tortillas. Yeah, tortillas. I think we should. Put, we'll both taste them.
1: We should put some cheese spread on it, don't you think?
3: Oh, this is a whole feast now, or are we...
1: Well, I don't know. Plain tortilla?
3: Cheese spread. Okay. Cheese spread.
1: They smell smoky. Wow. Something I haven't had before. They're still very soft.
3: Yeah. The texture is a little off-putting. It does have that sort of, you know, it could be sort of a placemat, mm. sort of a plastic placemat mm-hmm. thing. I'd also point out that you are taking a fulsome bite of this. Always. I'm still going to cook my dinner tonight, but, uh, you know, I mean, under uh, adverse circumstances, this probably would be...
1: It's Chipotle. It's got some smokiness to it. A little, little, tiniest, little bit of heat, maybe. The cheese spread is cheese bread, right?
3: And 50 years from now, you can come back and taste the cheese spread. It'll still be good. I'm sure it will be. Emmy, thanks so much for uh, coming here on Milk Street.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having
3: me. And, and by the way, you're the first guest who's brought me dinner now it's an MRE packet, but it's still dinner. Thank you.
1: You're welcome.
3: That was Emmy Cho. Her YouTube channel is called Emmy Made in Japan. Right now, my co-host Sarah Molt and I will be answering a few of your culinary questions. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's weeknight meals on public television. First, I have a question for you, Sarah. So let's talk about basic cookware. Cast iron, stainless steel, enameled, carbon steel, what do you cook with?
5: I actually cook with one of those. uh, You know, I love this one line of cookware that has a sandwich, you know, so it's several different metals. I'm just so used to it. I like the way it conducts heat. So it's a combination of aluminum and copper and titanium. And, uh, and it's made by Chantal, and it's very affordable.
3: You've cooked in restaurants. What about carbon steel, which is it's inexpensive great. and, and does great. a good job? It's great. No,
5: and I use certainly. I mean, you know, if you use it enough, just like cast iron, it becomes basically nonstick. nonstick. It's good stuff. Okay, time yes. for calls. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
6: This is Stephanie from New Jersey.
5: Hi, Stephanie from New Jersey. What can we do for you today?
6: When I'm... Cooking a protein and turning it with tongs, do I need to be concerned about food contamination? Like, say, I've got a steak in the pan, I take the raw steak off the plate and I put it in the pan, and then one side cooks and I turn it over with the same tongs. And then I might pick it up again and take its temperature with the tongs and then remove it from the pan to a clean plate. I don't put it back on the raw meat plate. But I'm just wondering, do I have to be concerned about contaminating the food with the tongs? Should I change them out at some point or just assume since I've lived 50 years and not been killed yet, I'm okay?
3: My mother had that same philosophy about her terrible food safety habits. And she said, I haven't killed you yet. And that was proof positive that she was right. <laughs> I don't think that's good logic. My answer is steak. I don't worry about because steak rarely has foodborne pathogens. Chicken, uh-huh. yes. If you're gonna cook chicken, I would not use the same tongs. I would use it when it's raw and turning, but then when it's cooked, I would use something entirely different. I would not use okay, the so same tongs. Okay, so
6: change them out when you're removing it after
3: all. Absolutely. The done. I mean, chicken, I think I've seen statistics where Eighty to ninety percent of chickens tested,
5: even organic,
3: have some sort of Salmonella pathogen, or Campylobacter. And, and so, I think you got to treat chicken like it is absolutely contaminated. So, I'd be very careful. Steak, steak's not a problem for me. Uh, well, I'm,
5: okay. I'm gonna say that I think you just in general you need to get in the habit of not mix. I mean, I agree with Chris that steak's nowhere near as dangerous, but I would still switch out my tongs. Yeah, that's fair. I have this friend, Elizabeth Carmel, who has a website called Girls at the Grill. She worked at Weber Uh Grill for years, and she's just a font of knowledge. And she's started developing some products, and one of the things she has, I'm not saying you need to get special tongs, but one of the things she has is green-tipped tongs and red tip. tongs. Oh, that's a good idea. So she starts with uh-huh. the red, and then she moves to the green. But I would get in the habit, just like you didn't use the raw plate of, you know, you switch yeah. the plates, I would switch the tongs. Just do it yeah, for all raw
3: protein. Why not?
5: I think okay. we're getting old. I think I think when
3: we were younger, <laughs> we would have, like, lived on the, you know, took a more walk daring. on the wild side yeah. But chicken in general, i just be very careful. I
5: agree. Just get in the habit of it. Okay. Thanks for right. calling, Stephanie. Yeah,
3: thanks.
6: All right, thanks. Love the show. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Uh, this is Gary. I'm calling from Chevy Chase, Maryland. Well, how are you? Very good. Uh, first of all, I want to say I've you know, been a huge fan of your cooking shows for a lot of years. And uh, I probably learned most of my cooking skills from your show. And uh, I I was really excited to see that Milk Street now is, um, you know, focusing more on on, uh, cuisines from around the world um, in the sense of showing how to adapt the recipes and teach the techniques. I'm especially excited for the recipes in Southeast Asia. And I've been looking at some of the recipes and I noticed that a lot of the recipes call for sake. Mm -hmm. I'm kind of novice with this and I was wondering if you could recommend any particular brands for cooking and if there's any substitutions. I think it's very much like buying white wine in French cooking. You don't want a cooking wine or a cooking sake. You want something you'd like to drink. And the other thing about sake, I'm no expert, but actually the fresher, the better. (laughs) It doesn't age well. So, yeah. And, And so you just want something you want to drink. Now, there's lots of different, an infinite number of choices. Some are very floral. Some are very fruity. Some are very dry. And, you know, some of them are very expensive, some of them are not. I'd find something you enjoy drinking and just use that as you would for, like, a white wine for French cooking. Don't keep too much of it around a long time because it won't age well in the bottle. Okay. Okay. that's great. And there's no substitutions at all that you would recommend? Like, you you couldn't swap out, say, dry wine? Yes, you could.
5: Well, I was going to say, I might do the old Julia thing vermouth. Oh, here we go. Dry white vermouth.
3: Yes. Yeah. Oh, keep, I wonder about vermouth as well. Because yeah, you can keep point. it in the fridge. Yeah. It's
5: a fortified wine. It certainly does not taste like sake, but I think it would that's work fine. a good fine. Point. You know, there's also mirin and um, you know, Shaoxing, the Chinese rice
3: wine. Well, the Shaoxing is very much like sherry. It's very dark. It's very different. It's not light. Yeah.
5: No. It sounds like you can get sake, so you might as well. But, you know, Julia even used vermouth as a substitute for white wine when she didn't have it. By the way, you keep vermouth in the fridge. And I think oh, you okay, also, great. once you open sake, you keep that in the fridge, too.
3: And you can use it, by the way, if you're steaming. A lot of recipes, we steam fish in a yeah. skillet. When you put some lemon slices or parsley stems underneath it, you might use okay. half a cup of white wine or a cup in a skillet. So if you wanted to use it up, that's a great way to like, steam salmon in 10 or 11 minutes, something like that. Yeah, that's that great. would be nice. Well, thank you. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for calling. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. This is Milk Street Radio. Please give us a call anytime at 855-426-9843. That's 855-426-9843, or send us an email at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com.
5: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi,
6: this is Alyssa calling from Nottingham, Pennsylvania.
5: How can we help you today?
6: Great. Uh, Well, thank you for taking my call. Um, I'm calling because I've gotten really into making fresh pasta at home, um, and I'd like to make pasta using whole grain flours. I've tried a couple of different types, at uh, varying ratios, um, but I just haven't gotten um, a very good texture. And I'd like to make 100% whole grain flour pasta if possible. Um, I'm wondering if you have any suggestions on types of flour to try or tips on how to adjust the ingredients or the technique to improve the texture.
3: Well, the first thing I would say is, I mean, I've tried this, is that you probably don't want to do 100%, let's say, whole wheat. I would do a mixture 50-50. The problem with whole wheat is as you're kneading it or putting it through the press, whatever you're doing, you're going to end up sort of cutting the gluten strands with the sharp pieces of that whole wheat. So you end up Mm. decreasing the gluten development. And one thing you want in pasta is gluten. You want that springy texture. I would try 50-50 to start with. Try to get the highest protein flours you can right? I mean, that would be also helpful, too.
5: You mean for the white flour element, half of
3: it? Yeah, but I I would say 50-50 would be a good place to start. If that works, then you can increase the whole wheat percentage the next time you do it. I think 100% whole wheat would be
5: I think mush. I I think you're trying to do something that's not possible because of the way the gluten develops, you know, in whole wheat flour, or does not develop, is the fact of the matter.
6: Okay. (laughs) Um, are there other types of whole green flour besides whole wheat that would be maybe better or have better gluten, like spelt or anything?
3: Like einkorn or something, that old, yeah. old wheat yeah, from the 19th century? Yeah, you might give that a shot. But, I mean, I guess the question is, you know, most Italians buy their pasta. They don't make it from scratch. Mm-hmm. If you wanted something with really great flavor, with interesting flours, that might be a good candidate for buying instead of making. But Mm -hmm. again, try 50-50. I think whole wheat is really the one you want because you'd like an orachete, which is whole wheat is delicious. Also, you can use a more robust sauce with a whole wheat pasta, as you know, which is terrific. Mm -hmm. But I would try 50-50 and go from there and try to use high protein with a white flour to make up for the whole wheat. Yeah.
5: Okay, great. Thank you. You're welcome. All right, Alyssa. Thank you.
3: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Helen from Linfield.
3: How are you?
6: Good. Thank you for taking my call. Pleasure. My problem I've had is um, the last two years I've been making yogurt, and I do it in um, a crock pot. And I um, get milk at um, a local dairy, so it's just pasteurized. So I heat it to 180, I let it cool to 110 to 115, put in my um, yogurt culture, and let it sit overnight. And it always came out great until... This past February, I had gone away, and when I came back, I started a new one, and um, the taste is okay, but it comes out really slimy, and I can't get it to not be slimy anymore. I've tried different um, starters.
3: This is one of those questions where it's the Sherlock Holmes (laughs) check off the list, so the milk is exactly the same milk from exactly the same place? The starter is exactly the same starter, I assume?
6: I've tried different ones, but usually I use like a 5J um, mm-hmm. starter.
3: And so you've used the same starter before you had a prom and as well as yeah, after? Yeah,
6: I always would use my own. I never had a problem.
3: The same crock pot? Yes. Does the crock pot have a removable insert you can throw in the dishwasher?
6: Yeah, I usually um, wash it with hot water by hand. But, I, yeah, it's removable.
3: I take that and any utensils you use and throw them in the dishwasher and make sure that there was nothing contaminating it for some reason.
5: Mm -hmm. It's possible that somehow, you know, some sort of wild yeast uh, Mm. is floating around your house and somehow got into the yogurt and sort of screwed it up.
6: Yeah, that's what I was wondering. But
3: You know what I would do? I would make yogurt and not use that crock pot, just use a different method. mm -hmm. That's That's what I would do. And that that would be a good test. Maybe stainless steel.
6: Yeah. That's what I was thinking that, that was the next thing I was going to try. Because if it doesn't
3: work in that, you've now eliminated the equipment.
5: But I think, I don't know, something about, you know, leaving and maybe the crock pot was not completely clean and there was wild yeast well, in could there. Well, you can test that. Yeah.
3: I would also go for a, if you know somebody else who makes their own yogurt, just g- um, grab some starter yeah, from then. Good.
6: Actually, the other person said that happened to them, too. It tastes okay,
5: but it's just slimy, yeah. the consistency.
3: Are there crop circles in town? I mean, is there <laughs> some, do we have an alien presence well, here? I'm just
5: wondering, does it have to do with the weather? I mean, is this within a particular period? It's like, who knows? Maybe there's a time of hmm. year when there's more... Pollen,
3: high pollen time.
5: ...wild, you know, spores going around. Well, wild to
3: summarize, uh, dishwasher for the utensils and crockpot. Make it without the crock pot. And try somebody else's starter. Those would be the three things. If those don't work. I will try that. And let us
5: know. Report that. And I
6: will let you know. Thanks, Helen. Thanks, Helen. Thank you so much. Bye. Thank you.
3: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Up next, my interview with Jose Andres. That in just a moment. I'm Christopher Kimball. And now here's a word from our friends at Allagash Brewing Company who love food as much as we do here at Milk Street.
7: Hi, this is Jason Perkins. I'm the brewmaster at Allagash, and I've been making Allagash White in Portland, Maine, since 1999. So a white beer is a very old style of beer. Traditionally, it was brewed with spices of some type, typically coriander and orange peel. And I think one of the things that makes Allagash White distinctive and different is the rare combination of complexity and drinkability. And it's sometimes remarkable to stop and realize that I never get tired of it. You know, I'll open a can or I'll pour a glass and the first sip and I'm like, man, this beer is good. (laughs) There are a lot of different ways that folks can enjoy an Allagash White. And here are some of the examples of what folks here at the brewery like to do.
5: My favorite thing to pair with an Allagash White is simple, beautiful seared scallops over a bed of fresh
2: greens with blood orange and shaved fennel.
7: My favorite would probably
6: have to be like an Italian or a hoagie, capicola, pickled vegetables, crusty bread. It's got that nice lemony, zesty character that just gets you ready for the next bite.
5: The ultimate pairing for me is this dish called bosom, which is this like big pork shoulder with like salt and brown sugar. We also call it candy pork in my house. And a little like scallion ginger sauce. It's like lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, lettuce, rice, pork, sip of white, and it's just perfection.
8: My other top choice was like a hot dog. Like just have a hot dog and have an Allagash White. You don't need to dress it up. There's something about muscles
5: with beer especially the white, that is just so good.
7: I feel like it goes really well with different soft cheeses that aren't too dominant, but then also with, like, spicy Indian food. So I think it's just really versatile.
5: I could imagine, like, something like um, like lemon meringue pie. That would be really nice. Pairing allagash white with carrot cake is a thing of beauty.
1: This maybe it sounds really boring, but pepperoni pizza? I feel like after a long week, having like a nice, warm pepperoni pizza and a cold Allagash White is just... Like you made it. Like you did your
5: week. You deserve this pizza. You deserve this beer. It's perfect in summer.
7: It's perfect in winter. I haven't really found a flavor that I don't think works really well with Allagash White.
5: <laughs> yeah, so not only do I drink it while I cook, I often cook with it. So if I'm creating some kind of stew, I'll add a little bit of
7: Allagash White to it.
5: A lot of people use Allagash White in like a fried fish batter. Anywhere where you can add like a spritz of lemon or a spritz of lime, that could be the beer. We are very food-minded here at Allagash, obviously. (laughs) And I think because of that, Allagash White is
8: Yeah, that's really good.
7: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allagash for sharing. You can try Allegash White at home, too. Head to Allagash.com locator to find Allagash White near you. For
5: 21 plus only, please drink responsibly. Allagash Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
0: This is Mill
3: Street Radio. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball. Jose Andres is a whirlwind of energy, outreach, and culinary innovation. With over 30 restaurants to his name, he's also the founder of World Central Kitchen, a nonprofit that provides meals in the wake of natural disasters. He just released his new book, Vegetables Unleashed, which he co-wrote with author Matt Goulding. Jose Andres, welcome to Milk Street.
4: Thank you for having me.
3: You know, every time we chat, it turns out you've been doing all these things in the interim last time I spoke to you a year and a half ago, you had 23 restaurants. Now you have 31. You were a culinary consultant on Hannibal. Uh, You were at the Oscars in 2018. I think you just got nominated for a Nobel Peace Prize. You have not been sitting still. So here's my question. You and I emailed when you were in Puerto Rico, serving millions of meals to people there. And you emailed me back and said, Chris, hop on a plane and just come over. And I and I said, "Well, that's crazy. I, I have family. I have a job. I've got this. I got a radio show, but you just get on the plane and go. So, could you explain that to me? You you somehow have much busier life than I do, but you manage to do these other things. How do you see the world that, that lets you do that?
4: Um, listen. I think I was uh, uh, very young when some someone, one of my teachers, told me. That probably time, I will realize one day that time is essence. And the way that you will have time to do other things is when you have good people around you right. that helps you cover in your absence. And I think I always took this to heart. Then when things like this happen, uh, I'm a very lucky person that I have people that stay behind covering the ground and then give me the opportunity to kind of get into these new opportunities to feed people somewhere else.
3: Do you think you get to the point in life, with, with your kind of career, where you're sort of owned by the world? I mean, h- how do you keep the, the personal life as well as this amazing life that you've built and all the people you help?
4: Well, this is probably the best question ever, uh, <laughs> uh, in, in, in more ways than one, because I'm asking myself that. I am about to be 50 this year, and everything I am, it is because somebody else before me made me who I am. It's so many ways. So I guess I'm in this moment that I felt the need and the urge, yes, to take care of myself. But I do believe that the new American dream is also not only thinking on taking care of yourself and your own, but also working as hard to try to provide for others you don't know. Uh, I understand that we cannot all be everywhere, but it gives me relief knowing that around the world, is always amazing people in our communities that they take care of each other. And that's the world I want to live in.
3: You are a firm believer, I, I think, that you can constructively create the world you want to live in, right?
4: Totally. And that means understanding that we are not perfect. You know, Winston Churchill said that success is going from failure to failure without losing enthusiasm. That means that sometimes you're gonna try and you're gonna you're gonna fail or you're gonna fall way short of your dreams. But even if you fall short you should be proud of yourself because you try. And hope and enthusiasm is what what makes us who we are and what keeps us going.
3: This reminds me, oddly enough, of a Calvin Coolidge quote I love. And he said, when you don't know what to do, do the work in front of you. <laughs> and and that sounds so much like that's something you would have said, right? Because people need to be fed, so you go feed them. It's, it's really that simple in well, some ways, I guess. we
4: all contribute to, to touch the few. But sometimes when we have the possibility, why we cannot try to, to reach the many? That's what right. uh, happens in this moment, that chefs like me and so many others, we have that power sometimes to show up and organize the chaos and start feeding people that are badly in the need of a plate of food.
3: So you get off the plane in Puerto Rico after the hurricane, and what did you see? And how did you overcome the obstacles? You, you wanted to feed people— But there were other organizations on the ground that wanted to have meetings first. Well,
4: even before I landed, uh, the first thing for everybody to understand is when we are already in the plane and the pilot says, does anyone carry a satellite phone with them? (laughs) And I'm like, what? (laughs) A satellite phone? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That was the situation in San Juan Airport. Uh, The pilot needed uh, that phone, that satellite phone, if he was going to be able to be talking to the control tower. When I arrived, I very quickly saw that the problem was even bigger than what we saw on TV. And the only thing we did is what we know. People are hungry, and people were in need of food. The shelves of the supermarkets were totally empty, and we gathered a group of friends, and we began cooking. First day, we did 1,000 meals.
3: And you ended up feeding millions eventually, how did you get from A to B? I mean, what were you cooking with? Propane? What, what did you have? What we
4: did was we went to the kitchen of my friend Jose Enrique in the heart of San Juan. We had to be in a place that anyone that wanted to help us could have easy access used by walking. Right. We had some gasoline and some cars. Why? Because in the moment you start feeding somebody, whatever gas is left, they're going to help you because they know you want to help even more people. So very quickly, we are cooks. We always know anyone that has food uh, where to find it. And we found food that was ready available in the island because they couldn't answer the phone because the phones were not working. What we did, we drove there. And what happened? We found them. And what happened? We opened a line of credit and they began giving us the food. And the only thing I told them, make sure whatever happens that the food keeps coming. So we went, for you to understand, from 20 friends the first day and one kitchen... We went from 20 friends to 25,000 volunteers, from one kitchen to 25 kitchens. Uh, At the end, yes, it's true. When many people were meeting and talking about how to do it, we were already doing it. Sometimes in these situations, a plan is an enemy of providing food relief. For us, no plan, just cooking and delivering the food to the people in need was what we did. And that's what we made a difference.
3: So the motto, I guess, is feed people first, have meetings afterwards. (laughs) You got it. (laughs) Uh, Let's talk about your book, uh, Vegetables Unleashed. Uh, You start with a few statistics. I just read a few of them. The calories from a dollar of soda, 420. Calories from a dollar of broccoli, 39. Increase in food waste in the last three decades, 50%. And I love this one. Percentage of Americans who do not regularly consume produce at all... 42%. 42%. You want to just talk about that for a second?
4: Well, the reason for me to do this vegetable book and concentrate on vegetables is because today, our farm bill, indirectly, through farming, through corn, we are able to subsidize meat. That's why it's so cheap, and that's why it's so ready and so findable anywhere. But big, big part of America has no access vegetables and fruits, and when they have access, it's expensive.
3: You have a great quote in the book. You say, unlike meat, fruits and vegetables offer a mystery that lingers long after you stop chewing.
4: I mean, uh, it's far away more sexier to have uh, a good bite of a juicy pineapple that needs to have a steak, and I, I'm a meat guy and I love steaks. But the truth is that I have the pineapple that is aroma, it's all around me, uh, it's fresh, it's juicy from the beginning to the end. It's like day and night. It's
3: funny because you sometimes disagree with sort of the conventional wisdom about buying food. So, so talk to me about this whole notion of, you know, food from a distance versus local food. You, you have a sort of different take.
4: Well, uh, i always been trying to argue against myself. I think it's a very good game. I think all we should be doing this. <laughs> I remember a few years ago, I was in Napa Valley, and we were uh, in a food conference. The conference was about local and seasonal, and I saw some chefs that they were complaining, like, we need to be doing more local, more seasonal. I don't understand the chefs that don't do local and seasonal. And that same chefs was drinking champagne from France and the jeans were made in Cambodia and their shoes were made in China. (laughs) And I was like, really? I do believe that pragmatism wins the day. I do believe that when it's local and it's seasonal, we need to be there supporting. But with all the issues we face, being pragmatic, I believe, wins the day. Some people even estimate that 30, 40% of the food production of planet Earth goes to waste, we need to make sure that the systems of distribution are so organized that we can make sure that when we have extra food somewhere, can reach where people are lacking food.
3: Let's turn to cooking vegetables for a moment. Uh, In Vegetables Unleashed, there's a lot of things you say in here that most people don't know, or it's a different way of looking at vegetables. So give me three or four basic Concepts here that would help me and other people think in a new way about cooking vegetables?
4: Well, one of the things I mentioned in the book, I think we dedicate an entire page on boiling water. Well, right. frankly, I grew up with my mother always putting a pot of water on the fire and she will put potatoes. And once the potatoes were about to be done, she will add or green beans or asparagus or broccoli or cauliflower. And in the moment those vegetables were cooked, she will strain the water and then she will put all these potatoes with the vegetables on the middle of the table, some olive oil, some Spanish pimenton or paprika, maybe some vinegar, and that's it. And I always remember that dish has been beautiful mm. today in my house. Every single day It's a plate of vegetables simply boiled on the table next to anything else we do. Sometimes the best recipe is the one that you make with love and that doesn't take a lot of time for you to spend on the kitchen.
3: You Also, I, I just have to mention it, you have a recipe for compost potatoes, <laughs> which uh, is pretty <laughs> interesting.
4: This, this one, everybody, <laughs> I know I'm going to be getting. Oh, lot of praise, oh, love, hit for it. So what's the <laughs> idea of the compost, um, the vegetables that are about to become compost and to cook with those same vegetables? It's almost like the entire 360-degrees circle of life. And all of a sudden, we had a lot of coffee grinds, and I think we had onions, and we had leeks, and we had corn, and we had tomatoes, and we put it in the oven in a terracotta plate. And guess what? We took them out. The potatoes were cooked. Was all this amazing aroma and smell coming from the oven, and we began eating the potatoes with some butter and some salt, and they were delicious. And so we put it on the book.
3: Do you think if you are, let's say, in America, cooking Ethiopian food or Peruvian food, do you, do you think that informs you a little bit about someone else's culture? It's a way of introducing other people to you or not?
4: Totally. When you have immigrants, they always enrich every city, every nation they come to because they bring with them who they are. And in the process, we all become better. So restaurants, to me, they've been this amazing way to make sure that different cultures from around the world, we will see that at the end, we are much more equal than we are different. We're equal because we love food. And we are equal because we love our traditions and food at the heart of the DNA of who we are.
3: You're an immigrant, unabashedly. It's very much a part of who you are. You feel very strongly about how America welcomed you and gave you an opportunity. What would you say about America as an immigrant experience?
4: Well, I will say still today is the land of opportunity. No country is perfect. Obviously, America, everybody is expecting so much from this beautiful country of ours. Why? Because when you are the most powerful country, this comes also with obligations, with responsibilities. And I do believe that America cannot hesitate to keep being the leader of the world, finding a home for what is right, but also making sure that we keep fighting around the world for what we think is right. On
3: a more personal note, I don't know if you ever have a quote-unquote day off or whether that idea even exists in your mind, but if you did have a day off, how ideally would you want to spend it?
4: <laughs> so if I can use a little bit of creativity and using the beam-me-up of a Star Trek, <laughs> I will start my very early morning where I was born in the beautiful uh, northern region of Asturias, very high up in the mountains. It's is like you could touch the clouds above you. And there is these three be- beautiful lakes, uh, surrounded by cows, some of the best cheeses are made with the milk of those cows. and this is a place that to me um, I call paradise. And then probably I will go from there to have a lunch in this little market in Peru, in a beautiful town of Cuzco, very close to where the Machu Picchu is. And in that market I will have these amazing fry eggs, with this uh, chopped tomato, and onion, and pepper. Then from there, probably, I will jump into Puerto Rico, and I will get lost in this amazing forest of el yunque. And you will hear this amazing sound of a little frog called el coqui. And it's a very good noise that you really don't want to forget, because it's a happy noise. And I can keep going and going, but I think so far, uh, this has been a good trip. <laughs> you know, interviewing
3: you when I ask a question, I, I never, I have no idea what you're going to say. And
4: This is only lunch.
3: That was an answer I did not expect, although it was extraordinarily poetic and moving.
4: But don't we all dream of those places? Uh, we want to be one of my favorite places in the world. is an island in the north part of the Galapagos, and there I've been uh, scuba diving with... Amazing sharks, hammerhead sharks, that in my life, next to my family, the next thing I want to be is in the water with hammerheads.
3: (laughs) If you're not afraid of swimming with hammerhead sharks, uh, what are you afraid of?
4: You know what I'm afraid of? I'm afraid of, of humanity giving up on itself, of... Not giving a damn of those that are not like us. But at the same time, being afraid is only a way used to be alert. But being hopeful is a way to take action.
3: Jose, thank you so much uh, for joining us on Milk Street. And uh, I need to get down and say hello soon.
4: Or I go up and I say hello too. I miss you, my friend. Big kiss and congrats on everything you're doing.
3: Thank you. That was chef Jose Andres. His new book is called Vegetables Unleashed, a cookbook. Jose Andres keeps showing up in my life. Years ago at a book signing in Bethesda, one summer evening by pure chance, finding him with his family, standing just a block away from my house, or getting an email from Jose asking me to meet him in Puerto Rico in the wake of the hurricane. I'm beginning to think that he's trying to deliver a message. Perhaps Tennessee Williams put it best, make voyages, attempt them, There is nothing else. It's time to chat with Lynn Clark about this week's recipe, chocolate ginger scones. Lynn, how are you? I'm great, Chris. You know, I spend uh, some time up in Portland, Maine. It's not far from Boston. Uh, In-laws live there. And Tandem Bakery is one of those great bakeries. There's a lot of them in Portland, but I love Tandem. And Brianna Holt is the baker, and among other things, she makes great scones with really unusual combinations of flavors. Last time I was there, it was a chocolate ginger scone. Big chunks of chocolate and big chunks of ginger, too. I thought it was kind of an odd combination at first, and then I took a bite, and I was convinced. So uh, let's do Brianna Holt's chocolate ginger scones.
2: Brianna's recipe is perfect. She uses three different types of ginger. She uses ground ginger, fresh ginger, and crystallized ginger. Big chunks of chocolate. It has a really nice craggy exterior, but really soft and fluffy on the inside. Uh, the only problem with her recipe is that it's bakery production-sized, so huge quantities. We needed to just scale it down for the home cook, and that is tricky when it comes to baking
3: because things work on a big scale, don't always work well on a small scale.
2: Unfortunately Unfortunately. So we start with the dry ingredients, that's the flour, the sugar, some warm spices, a little bit of black pepper, which is kind of one of her hallmarks of combining sweet and savory flavors, uh, the leavener, and that gets mixed together and then half of that goes in the food processor and you add really cold butter to that and process just until those pieces of butter are about pea-sized pieces.
3: So you and I have made scones hundreds of times, Never together, I'd point out, but in our separate Probably households. Not. And you take all the dry ingredients and all the butter and put it together at one time, and now she's doing half the dry ingredients. Why?
2: So that's actually something we discovered here at Milk Street. We found that in order to get the butter incorporated really well and get everything sort of a uniform size piece of butter, only adding half of those dry ingredients allowed us to do that without softening the butter too much. Some pieces would get really too soft. Other pieces were too big. So this really incorporated it well.
3: So it was a Milk Street trick. It was. Okay, so now we have a dough, and what do we do?
2: So we put that in to a bowl, add the rest of the flour, add in the crystallized ginger and the chocolate, and then you want to toss this really gently together. We should be using sort of like the claw hand to toss this together. We add buttermilk to this. That's the liquid ingredient we're using here. But you want to do that in three additions and really sort of gently combine it. It's really important not to overwork this, or like I said, the butter will melt.
3: Because there's a lot of butter in this recipe. There is. These are fairly big scones, I assume.
2: They are. So we take that quantity of dough and transfer it to the counter, knead it just really a couple of times to get sort of a cohesive dough, and flatten it into a disc, and then you make six sort of large scones out of this wedges.
3: So these bake in a moderately hot oven, I assume? Uh,
2: 375 for about 30 minutes. Uh, she likes them room temperature, but I think they're just as good hot, and the chocolate's nice and melty. It's really delicious.
3: We've never tasted them room temperature because they never lasted <laughs>
2: That's probably true.
3: <laughs> so thanks to Brianna Holt of the Tandem Bakery in Portland. Main triple ginger scones with chocolate chunks. Thank you, Lynn.
2: You're welcome. You can get this recipe for triple ginger scones with chocolate chunks at 177milkstreet.com.
3: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dan Pashman and I discuss the politics of the communal office fridge. We'll be right back. This is Most J Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Now it's time for some culinary inspiration from one of our listeners.
6: Hi, this is Cooker Lady Debbie from New Jersey. My tip is about vanilla beans. I take two or three vanilla beans and I push them right into my sugar container. Voila, I have vanilla sugar. It flavors my sugar, so if I'm adding it to coffee or something like that, it has much better flavor. It's a great tip, and you use less vanilla. Thank you.
3: If you'd like to share your own culinary tip on Milk Street Radio, please go to 177milkstreet.com slash tips. One more time, 177milkstreet.com slash tips. Next up, it's the
8: uncensored Dan Pashman. Dan Pashman, how are you? I'm doing well, Chris. You know, I've never had the opportunity to visit you at Milk Street headquarters, but I would assume that you have refrigerators there
3: yeah yeah we do
8: and i'll I'll bet that there's some refrigerators that are like for recipe testing and development that's like for the, the work that's being done but then there's other refrigerators or at least a refrigerator that's like an a staff office fridge like for people to bring in their lunches and whatever
3: yeah there's one half size brown plastic fridge that sits by the water cooler and all of our 40 employees have to cram things into a space the size of uh about four lunch boxes,
8: which creates an issue, and, and this is what I want to discuss with you: is the overall issue of office fridge theft. Office refrigerators all across this land, Chris. People are stealing other people's lunches. What What can folks out there do to prevent office fridge theft? Well, well
3: first of all, what's being stolen? If you bring, is someone stealing your lunch, or they're taking your yes, yogurt, or they're taking they're st- your. What?
8: All of the above. Really? Kombuchas, bottles of ketchup, a whole sandwich. Sometimes people are opening up a plastic container of food and eating some of it out and then putting it back half <laughs> really? eaten. There are some <laughs> depraved creatures out there, Chris, let me tell you. And so right. and so, what's your theory about why this is happening all of a sudden? Well, Well, I don't know that it's all of a sudden. I think it's been happening for a long time, but I think maybe there's more conversation around it now in the age of hmm. social media. I think it's a power move is really why they're doing it. I think that the people who do this on a regular basis are people who feel disenfranchised, and they feel like this is a way to to strike back. But but there are things that you can do. You know, There are things you can do to protect yourself, Okay. okay? First of all, I think that sometimes people get too hung up on refrigeration. If you brought in your food that morning from home, there's almost no food in the world that needs to be refrigerated for the four or five hours until you eat it. If you're going to put it in the fridge... Store it in an opaque container. All right. Google did research at their headquarters. You know, Chris, all these dot com places have all this free food in the the offices. And Google has they had like a bunch of junk food and then they had like healthy snacks and they wanted to get their employees to eat the healthy snacks. But they didn't want to take away the unhealthy snacks because that would seem too authoritarian. So what they did is they put the unhealthy snacks in opaque containers and the healthy snacks in clear containers. And they found that because it was easier to see what was inside the clear containers, people ate more of the healthy snacks. So don't make it too easy for people to see what your food is. Wrap it well in in an opaque container and shove it in the back of the fridge. The average office fridge thief is not going to go digging. Is this they're right? looking for easy so, prey.
3: One of our most successful corporations, the Google, this is what they're spending their time on, is is, is right. <laughs> refrigerator. <laughs> they got money from... to burn, Chris. <laughs> okay, so <laughs> opaque container that's hard to
8: open in the back of the fridge, okay. Uh, right. And then if you find yourself being a repeated victim, I have heard uh, stories that people um, putting an insane amount of hot sauce or right. hot peppers in their lunch so that the, the thief takes one bite and is, like, scarred forever and never bothers you again— I will say I think that the angry note or the all staff email, which is a common approach, that's entertaining. And if you want to entertain your coworkers, go for it. But I don't think that helps. In fact, if anything, I think it probably encourages the thief because it gives them the attention that they crave. So what about, you know, some some containers are very
3: hard to open. What what about the most difficult container to open? That would be my first place to go.
8: I think that's a good move. I mean, you know, maybe you got to childproof your situation there. But, you know, Chris, I I think the the solution to this problem and, and how the office fridge should be managed says a lot about the way we think society should function. You know, because the office fridge is a shared resource. And then there's the foods that we all bring in. But let's say that you bring in a jar of hot sauce. Well, I might I might like a few dashes of hot sauce in my food. Does that mean I now have to bring in my own hot sauce and you're going to bring in, you know, do we need is all 40 Milk Street employees each going to have a salad dressing and a hot sauce in the fridge all simultaneously? You know, that's a waste of space. It's a waste of communal resources, right? Shouldn't we all come together and share resources? Then again, some people would say, no, look, you know, to each his own, like libertarian, live in a cabin in the woods and, um, you know, every every person for themselves.
3: So, okay, you're suggesting that some of the things in the office fridge should be shared resources and other things are private property.
8: That's right. That's exactly right. Just like anything in society, you know, we we all pool resources to get the roads paved and for schools and for police and fire departments and all these things. So shouldn't the office fridge be managed in a similar way to some degree? Well, then there should
3: be two office fridges, the communal one and then the private property fridge.
8: Interesting. And and how do we determine each individual's obligations to the communal fridge? <laughs> this is like Lord of the Flies, right? Or something. Is, it, is that where we're headed here? <laughs> well, it, it could be. But, you know, it's like, I mean, sh- should the people who take more from the communal fridge provide more? Should the people who make more money in the office, the higher salaries, should they provide more? I mean, should it be from each according to his ability to each according to his need what what should be our guiding principle you know i i, I would let chaos reign
3: <laughs> and let people figure it out on their own that's what i would do
8: right so you're lord of the flies you you you're, you're, you're going to you're not going to take my communist manifesto bait
3: so so just to summarize here so your solution to this problem is a communal set of rules and regulations around the use of the fridge
8: Well, I think you're right that if you bring in your own food, like a sandwich or a lunch or a salad or something, and you put that in the fridge, like that's yours. Right. But condiments, seasonings, sauces, I mean, first of all, just space efficiency like you should share. But I also think that in offices today, even with all this move towards open workflow plans and um, low walls and we're all sitting on top of each other, I think that still people don't interact much because we're all looking at our computers too much. And I think that the idea of having this space where we all we come together and, we, oh, you need some hot sauce? Here you go. You need some ranch dressing? There you go. Oh, I got some malden salt. You know, it turns lunchtime into a communal activity. And I think that that's kind of fun. Fair enough. If I have to buy a couple more bottles of sriracha than I use, you know, that's my contribution to the greater good.
3: Well, that's good. You're you're not tyrannical.
8: Dan, thank you. Uh, condiments should be shared.
3: Don't touch my sandwich. Fair enough. I'll take that deal. <laughs> That was Dan Pashman of The Sporkful. That's it for today. If you tuned in later or just want to listen again, please download and subscribe to Milk Street Radio on your go-to podcast app. To learn more about Milk Street, visit 177milkstreet.com. There you can download each week's recipe, take an online cooking class, or order our latest cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. You can also find us on Facebook at Christopher Kimball's Milk Street, on Instagram and Twitter at 177 milkstreet We'll be back next week, and thanks, as always, for listening.
2: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer, Melissa Baldino. Senior audio editor, Melissa Allison. Producer, Annie Sinzebaugh. Associate producer, Jackie Nowak. Production assistant, Stephanie Cohn. And production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer, Douglas Sugarts. Additional editing from Vicki Merrick, Sydney Lewis, and Haley Fager. And audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.